Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I hope all of you are having a fantastic Wednesday. FYI, I am headed up to Cooperstown, New York tomorrow for a Little League baseball tournament. My 12-year-old is playing in a tournament there, so I will not have a show Thursday, Friday, Monday. I don't know when I'm coming back. Um, but uh, but I will be in Cooperstown, New York for the next several days. Um, and so there will not be an outkick to show. There will be a Clay and Buck. I'm going to talk about the interview we just had a little less than an hour ago uh, with former Vice President Mike Pence. But uh, as we uh, begin here, I want to say thank you to everybody who is subscribing, particularly on YouTube. You all are my favorites. Uh, and so if you are out there right now in the YouTube universe, click like or subscribe. And uh, if you do so, then uh, I hope we will continue to entertain you as we are now over a million subscribers. I don't know how high we can go. Maybe we can get 2 million now. I think we're coming up on 1.1 million. Uh, so I guess 2 million is the new target. Um, all right. So uh, this will be the last show of the week, uh, but uh, I wanted to let you guys all know that. Okay. Some of you may have heard uh, the Mike Pence interview uh, that we just had on Clay and Buck. If you did not, I have tweeted it out, and I would encourage our team when they clip this to include uh, the questions that were a part of the discussion that I'm about to have. But essentially, uh, you guys have heard me talk about it on this show and on Clay and Buck. I believe as a matter of principle, this is as a matter of principle, regardless of what you think about Donald Trump, if you are running for president of the United States as a Republican candidate in 2024, I think you need to pledge to pardon Donald Trump in the event that he is convicted. Now, uh, that goes whether you are Ron DeSantis, whether you are Chris Christie, whether you are Mike Pence, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, Nikki Haley, or um, Tim Scott. This is something that I said on the radio uh, a while back. You may have heard me question Ron DeSantis about it the day after Ron DeSantis announced that he was running for president over a month ago. Um, and I don't think it should be a great surprise. We had Nikki Haley on yesterday. Ask her the question. Um, and by the way, you don't have to agree with me. OK, a lot of you out there watching right now, listening right now, you may be saying, I hate Donald Trump. I think he should go to prison. I think they should convict him, lock him in prison, throw away the key. I wouldn't pee on him. There's no way on earth that I would ever pardon him. OK, that's your right. I disagree with you. I think charging a former president who is the leading candidate to be president again in 2024 uh, for the first time in the 240-plus-year history of the United States, frankly, I think that is an awful precedent to set. And I think it's important to stand on principle over politics and say, I'm not going to allow this precedent to become a reality. I'm not running for president, but if I were, I would come out and say, quite succinctly, as I have, I would pardon Donald Trump after I take the oath of office in January of 2025, I'm not going to allow him to go to prison. By the way, I've said the same thing of Joe Biden. If I were advising Joe Biden, I would advise Joe Biden to pardon Donald Trump because I think the precedent for the nation is so 
awful that we are making very poor choice if we try to put Donald Trump in prison. In prison. Okay, right? So, I asked Mike Pence that. And Mike Pence effectively dodged the question. And then I pressed him on it, and it got a little bit heated. And we read an email. Buck Sexton kind of came in and, uh, and you know, like refereed it and pulled me out of the uh, the line of questioning. Um, and look, I think Mike Pence's presidential campaign is over. I do. I think it was an awful answer. I think Mike Pence could have come out and said, as a matter of principle, I made the right decision on January 6th. If Donald Trump is convicted, I think he should have to serve time in, in prison. I, I'm standing on principle. I would disagree with him on that position on Trump, but I would respect the fact that he gave an honest answer. And as I said, I would stand on principle and refuse to allow a president and a presidential, former president as well as a current presidential contender to be taken out by the chief political opposition for what I believe are primarily political-related charges, right? I've said pretty clearly, I think the charges are politically based. I also don't think that Trump handled them as well as he could. You can believe both those things, right? But you need to stand on principle. When you dodge giving an answer to that question, to me it's a no. And also, you're undermining the very basis of your entire candidacy. I think Mike Pence ended his candidacy, in my opinion, in the interview that he just gave on Clay and Buck. Because his candidacy is, I will stand on principle no matter what. I did. I'm talking as if I was Mike Pence. I did what was right on January 6th, and I'll do what's right as it pertains to the Trump uh, pardon. But you have to have an answer. You can't fake it. And frankly, one of the things I always think of when I am doing a radio show is I feel fortunate because I get to meet and I get to interview presidential candidates all over the country, right? Um, and that's an incredible privilege. But so is running for office. And you should be prepared to answer questions and tell voters where you stand on issues. And when politicians dodge and try to avoid taking stances, I think it's the job of people in my position to ask them questions when I think they are dodging and to press them on it. Because the audience can tell. When you're getting a non-answer, if I'm driving around in my car, I'm listening on a podcast, I get frustrated when questions aren't answered. So I think it's the job of hosts to press and try to get answers and information from candidates. And I think, again, the underlying premise of the entire Pence campaign is I will stand on principle. And when you refuse then to stand on principle, I think it's a big story. And I think it deserves to be discussed. And I think Mike Pence has put himself in a position now uh, where he's alienated himself from everybody. Because whatever base there is that believes in the Republican Party that Donald Trump should suffer consequences for his behavior is relatively small, but Pence didn't give them the answer that they wanted. And the base of the party that disagrees and believes that you should stand on principle and that Donald Trump did nothing wrong and that he doesn't deserve to be put in prison that entire group as well, I just think Mike Pence should have been prepared for this question, and I think he should have answered it better, and I think it was disrespectful of the audience that he tried to dodge it. Um, and so I held his feet to the fire on it. Um, I think that's what the job is. Um, when you ask a question, you don't get the answer. I'm not going to just allow a politician to dodge it. 
Um, and so you can go listen to that audio yourself. When we clip this part of the show, you can listen to it. I think it's going to echo and reverberate through a lot of political circles as he didn't answer that question. Um, so that was today. Uh, everybody has an open forum on the Clay and Buck show. We had Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on. Heck, we'd have Gavin Newsom on. We would invite Joe Biden on the show, right? Democrat, Republican, if you're running for president of the United States. Um, I think you should have to answer tough questions. But I also think you should have uh, the opportunity to avail yourself of our audience, which is pretty massive. Uh, and if you don't answer questions, I think you should get called out on it. That's what I did today. Some people may disagree, right? It's a great thing. I always say the First Amendment's alive and well uh, on our radio program. Uh, and that is not going to change uh, anytime in the near future. Um, so that is the latest. You may hear about that uh, story blowing up. Uh, several other different stories that are out there. Uh, Bud Light has now been passed by Modelo. I never would have guessed if you had asked me, I would have guessed 100% Bud Light was the most popular beer in America if you had asked me, you know, a few months ago before they decided to go woke and lit their brand on fire. I would have 100% said Bud Light's number one. I never would have guessed that Modelo is the second most popular beer in America. Never would have remotely guessed it. It is now the most popular beer in America. Bud Light has lost its 22-year reign as the most popular beer in, a bear in America, and Modelo is now the most popular, and Coors Light and Miller Light are also increasing as Bud Light has tanked. We can put up a tweet. Uh, in the uh, short clip version of this, uh, where you will see Wall Street Journal reporting it, uh, Modelo, now the most popular beer in America. And to me, this is going to be studied, the Bud Light implosion in marketing programs for the next few generations, because the Bud Light brand lit itself on fire. And what's wild is all they have to say is we were wrong. All they have to do, all they have to do, is come out and say, you know what? We got it wrong. We shouldn't have done uh, the trans uh, advertiser bit. We shouldn't have had a marketing uh, department head who said that Bud Light's reputation was too fratty and that there was too much negativity uh, associated with the humor. And they would have been number one as a beer for years and years to come, and certainly they wouldn't have seen their brand tank. I just, I'll say it again. I'll continue to give them advice. Bud Light, hire me as your marketing head. I've got like 80 jobs, all right? I can add an 81st. If you made me the head of Bud Light marketing, I would have Bud Light back as the number one beer in America within six months. My pledge to you. I guarantee it, right? Uh, I could make that happen. Instead... They are so afraid of offending the far left-wing woke universe, which never buys their beer, never bought their beer in the first place, is never going to buy their beer, that they won't acknowledge what they did wrong, and frankly, the brand may be dead. The brand may never recover from this, because I'll tell you, nobody at SEC tailgates this fall is going to be drinking Bud Light. Nobody at Big Ten tailgates is going to be drinking Bud Light. Used to be probably, along with Mick Ultra, the most popular beers that you would see. Now, when you see a guy drinking a Bud Light, you make fun of him. They have so destroyed their brand that if you see a dude drinking a Bud Light, one guy's going to say to another, oh, you're a Bud Light kind of guy, right? 
making fun of you. And the Bud Light brand is so destroyed that it's only going to get worse from here. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the trans gay community loves light beer. It's a joke. They certainly are not the primary consumers of Bud Light, right? This is the, the Bud Light brand has lit itself on fire unless they hire somebody like me to recreate their uh, brand value. They're done for. Um, and I think this is an important message because this is the first brand publicly, although I would argue the NBA and Disney have also had this happen. I'm going to write about it. This is the first brand publicly for everybody to acknowledge, you know what? They went woke and they destroyed themselves. Even the most left-wing marketing advertiser person in the country cannot dispute this. This is what Bud Light created. This is what they did to themselves. And as a result, as a result, I think that as you continue to break this down, the only way they can build back is by essentially apologizing to everybody that has turned on their brand. And they maybe have waited too long to even be able to come back from this. We'll be right back in a moment, but first, this break. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real Steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Um, several other different stories. This is a great story. I shared it from the Wall Street Journal as a precedent on the Donald Trump case. Uh, the Bill Clinton sock drawer. Bill Clinton and Taylor Branch. Taylor Branch wrote a magisterial work on America in the King years. I've met him. He's a fabulous author. I really like his work. Uh, narrative historian. Um, Bill Clinton sat with Taylor Branch and did a long-form series of interviews about his presidency and then kept the clips, despite the fact that they were produced using United States taxpayer funds, right, the recording apparatus, he kept all of these taped interviews in his sock drawer and when he left the White House, he gave all of these tapes to Taylor Branch so that one day he could be able to write a story, narrative history about it, or provide it to others who could do it. Um, and he refused to provide the raw copies to uh, people who sued, arguing that this should be turned over as archival material. And interestingly, interestingly, the judge ruled, and this could be a really interesting precedent in the Trump case, the judge ruled that th those tapes, those tapes from Donald, uh, from Bill Clinton, were the president's property because whatever he took from the White House was his. How would that not apply to everything that Trump took from the White House? I think it's a really intriguing question. Um, also, I'm going to continue to hammer this. There is absolutely, right now, zero. Zero out there. Uh, when you look at, uh, at, at, at all the evidence, who's the victim? The National Archives has all of the Trump documents that they saw. They have them in their possession now. 
Isn't this basically a process-based victimless crime that they're trying to charge Trump with? Like, who actually is a victim here? There's no suggestion that anything occurred that was a criminal nature in terms of sharing these documents with enemies. Now the documents are back in the possession of the National Archives. What are we doing here? This is an entirely process procedural-based crime. It's just, when you really break it down, again, we talk on Clay and Buck all the time, there's a difference between a crime of violence, right? If Donald Trump was driving a car drunk, we said on the show today, and he hit somebody, well, he would deserve to, to stand trial for that. That's a crime. If Donald Trump was accused of murder, or if Donald Trump was accused of physical assault, or something that had a real victim then I would be the first person to say the president's not above the rule of law. But when you let Hillary Clinton walk, when you let Joe Biden so far walk with far worse crimes associated allegations to his family than anything the Trumps have done, we have two standards of justice here. And the Bill Clinton sock drawer is a perfect example of this story. I would encourage you to go read the article, uh, the editorial that's written in the Wall Street Journal. It's fascinating. A couple of other stories here uh, before I leave. Johnny Depp has been paid by Amber Heard the damages in that case. And Johnny Depp, baller move, has decided to donate that money to charity. So that big Amber Heard, Johnny Depp defamation case, Amber Heard was hit with a massive settlement. I believe they basically settled on she would pay him a million dollars. And Johnny Depp has gotten that payment. Otherwise, she would have been bankrupted. And Johnny Depp donated that payment to charity. What a baller move by Johnny Depp. There's also reports that Disney's trying to get him to come back and be Captain Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean, but that so far he is not be willing to do it. By the way, I watched this new show, The Idol, uh, on HBO starring Lily Rose Depp, who is his daughter. Um, kind of fascinated by it. Uh, only watched one episode. The weekend is in it, too. But... It seems to me to be a direct attack on the BS woke nature of modern media. And that's not a surprise why so many people in media have rated it poorly because they're a part of the censorious block. I kind of like the first episode. Now, it's not for kids. It's scandalous from a sex perspective and from a language perspective. Guess what? I'm an adult. <laughs> And I kind of liked it. I'm going to watch episode two. The reviews were bad, but I found it really kind of enticing and interesting. Uh, finally, best author of my life, um, Cormac McCarthy. If you have not read Cormac McCarthy's work, I have read everything that Cormac McCarthy has written. I have a first edition copy of Blood Meridian. Uh, which is one of my prized possessions. Yes, I'm somewhat of a nerd. I collect some first editions of novels that I'm a big fan of. Um, All the Pretty Horses was the, the back in like 1992, that came out and really captivated the nation, part of uh, Cormac McCarthy's Border Trilogy. But Cormac McCarthy was grew up most of his life in Knoxville, University of Tennessee student, uh, wrote a series of books that were set uh, in the southern Appalachian region, uh, Knoxville to a large extent. I would say Sutri, probably the best of all of those that were set in the southern Appalachians. 
Blood Meridian, I think, is probably his magnum opus, in my humble opinion. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I have a background. Not only did I get a uh, law degree at Vanderbilt, but I also got a Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. So I taught creative writing at Vanderbilt University back in my 20s. And there is a world where I never end up doing any of this, right? I don't found OutKick. I don't do radio. I don't do TV. Uh, there is a part of me that back when I was 18 or 19 years old was like, hey, all I want to do is just teach creative writing uh, at a university and just go write novels, not get you know wrapped up in the in the in the you know sort of daily news cycle or the political realm or even the sports realm and just write novels. Um, in fact, I've got eight unpublished full novels that I wrote in my 20s and my early 30s before I ended up doing what I do here. Cormac McCarthy is, in my opinion, the best writer of my life. Um, and I think what he managed to do is he managed to twin uh, sort of what I would say the exuberant and, uh, and, and very broad and wildly descriptive William Faulkner writing style with the spare Spartan universe of Ernest Hemingway. And I don't know if I've heard anybody else describe this, but Hemingway and Faulkner are probably my two favorite authors in terms of uh, people before uh, who died before I was born. Um, I love their work. It's obviously very different. But I felt like in many ways, by the end, when he moved his writing down to the Texas and Mexico border, uh, the writing style of McCarthy changed quite a bit. And it moved from primarily a Faulkner-based focus to more of a Hemingway style. And he ultimately synthesized and twinned, in my, in my opinion, much of the flowery excess of Faulkner with the Spartan simplicity of Hemingway and dovetailed those two writing styles into an entirely new way of communicating, uh, which to me was uh, was incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, powerful with his work. So he died yesterday, 89 years old, the best writer of my life. Rest in peace, Cormac McCarthy. By the way, if you want my Mount Rushmore, everybody has Mount Rushmores of, of people that they think are uh, the best writers. I would put four American writers on my Mount Rushmore of greatest American writers, all right? Mark Twain, William Faulkner, Ernest Hemingway, Cormac McCarthy. That would be my quad of the greatest American novelist, if you want to take it outside of the nonfiction universe. Uh, again, Mark Twain, uh, Ernest Hemingway, William Faulkner, Cormac McCarthy. If you're a young person and you happen to be listening to this right now and you think to yourself, you know what, one day I'd like to grow up and write the great American novel, I would suggest you, first of all, read tons of uh, of novelists, right? But the four greatest American novelists, in my opinion, Faulkner, Hemingway, Mark Twain, and Cormac McCarthy. That is my Mount Rushmore, four greatest American authors uh, of, uh, of, not, of fiction, novelists in, in American history. All right. I love all of you. DBAP unless you need to SBAP. I am Clay Travis. This has been... Outkick the show.